This morning I want to talk about Easter. Surprise! Why would we want to talk about Easter on this day? But you know, I want to spend some time talking about the reality of Easter. The reality of what Easter is. Last week we talked about the expectations of Palm Sunday. Coming into this Easter week, there were many, many expectations from a groups of people about what this week was going to entail. And uh, Palm Sunday was the beginning of a big week in the Jewish calendar. It was the, the beginning of Passover and a very important time for the Jewish faith and for the Jewish people. And there's a lot of excitement when this Jesus comes into town. And as a result of the excitement that Palm Sunday brought in, there was a lot of different expectations from different groups of people. And I want to talk a little bit about the reality now of that expectation. Were the expectations met from the people that had all the high expectations? Were they met? in this week and in this day. The five groups that we talked about last week, I just want to review them real quick, but first we talked about the Jewish, the Jewish zealots. And you saw a little bit about that in this clip, about how they were coming and how they, they saw the coming of Jesus as to be their physical king and their savior from the Roman Empire, Empire that was going to deliver them from the bondage of this heavy rule that Rome was under. And they were going to do it through through violence. They were a violent crew. That was the way that they knew that's the, that was their expectation that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom on earth and it was going to be taken through violence. And then there were the city people. These were the common everyday people that really didn't have much or any expectation of who Jesus was. They didn't really know too much about him. Maybe they didn't even hear about him. The internet was not a big deal back then, and Facebook was not even thought of. And so the people didn't know how there was no mass social media available. So there were a lot of people in that day that didn't even know who Jesus was. And the sad thing about it today is that there are still a lot of people in our community that don't know who Jesus is. There's a lot of common people in our lives that we run across every day that are just common, ordinary people with no expectations and in many ways have no reality either. And then there are the Pharisees, the religious Jewish leaders of the day, the learned ones that were very offended with this rise of popularity of Jesus. They were threatened because Jesus was going to come and upset their power base. Jesus was going to come and take away their job security. And they didn't like that. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the ones that had everything in control. And they didn't like Jesus with all the things that he was claiming to be. He, they didn't like that. And they were the main plotters, if you will, of Jesus' death. Here are the religious ones, the ones that should have been accepting Christ, the ones that should have recognized all the historical prophecies that were being fulfilled in this life of Jesus, and they missed it. And boy, that brings a lot of clarity maybe in our own lives today as religious people. Are we missing anything? Are we missing anything with who Jesus is in our lives? So again, this cast of characters is also a good time for us to reflect in how we think. What are our expectations their expectations of the Palm Sunday were to kill Jesus and to stop this uprising that was happening. They wanted to bring it back to status quo. They wanted to be in charge, and they didn't want this new religious leader to come along. And then number four, we talked about the disciples or, and the true followers of Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus picked 12 men. He handpicked 12 men, but it grew. It was by this time there was a crowd of people that, were follow, that was following Christ. And these were loyal followers of Jesus, and they truly believed in his deity. They truly believed that he was the Son of God. 
But yet, what were their expectations of this week? I think what we find is that maybe they were not really knowing what to expect either. They really didn't expect him to die, I don't think. I still think that many of them kind of lined up maybe with the zealots a little bit, but we heard Peter say, but we're fishermen. We don't do it by violence. So they were expecting Christ to set up some type of a kingdom, but not violently, and I don't think they really believed he was going to die. Jesus told them many times in many ways, I'm here to die, that's my purpose, that's what I'm doing, and I think they still had in their mind that there was another way. Boy, a good lesson for me. How many times do I figure out there's got to be a different way? When Jesus says, I am the way and the only way to God the Father, and I'm looking at myself thinking, no, there's got to be a different way. Maybe there's a workaround someplace. Man, the, the, this, these group of people here, yes, they loved Jesus and they followed him, but they still didn't always get it, and they missed it a lot as well. And, and that's evident to them, and it's evident to me, and, but yet this gives me great hope because I saw how Jesus handled them patiently. And he never gave up on him. And he's not going to give up on you and I either. And then fifthly was Jesus. Jesus was the only one that understood his mission that day. He understood it from the very beginning of time, before the foundation of the world was created. He knew that this week was coming. He knew what was going to happen to him. He knew the pain, the suffering, the rejection, the, the sacrifice, the agony. But yet, but yet, he still chose to go through with it. He had a choice in this. Even to the very end, he had a choice. And his choice was not my will, but your will, Father. And therefore, because of his choice, we have a choice today. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the reality of what happened on Easter and how those expectations of all those people weren't really met. But Jesus in the reality. I want to take some time and go through and read the scriptures, okay? We're going to read Matthew chapter 27 beginning at verse 32. Well, I want to read the account so that we clear, clearly understand it. And maybe you know this very story very well, maybe not, but I think it's worth it that we take the time to read God's Word. So uh, you can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 32. It says this, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. 
Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. She filled it with, white, with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus, Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now let's just pause here for a minute. You know, that we, that's just one sentence that we kind of read over pretty fast. But do we understand the significance of what happened right then and there? That curtain that they're referring to was the curtain that separated the innermost place, the Holy of Holies, from the outer courts. This is where once a year the priests, the priest, one man, could go in and atone for the sacrifices of all the people of Israel through, through blood sacrifices one day that year. It was such a holy place that he wore bells around his robe or his clothing, his garments. And they tied, an, they tied a rope to his ankle. Because if he had sinned of any way, shape, or form, if this priest hadn't cleansed himself properly, he, and if he came into the presence of God, God would strike him dead. And they would know that he's dead because they would stop hearing the bells tinkling as he's walking around doing his sacrifices. And if they stopped hearing the bells tinkling, they would take the rope and pull him out because no one could go into the presence of God. That's how serious this inner court is. And now we have, during the crucifixion, when Jesus says, it is finished, what does God do? God takes that curtain, which is probably six inches thick, and he tears it from the top down. This curtain is about 60 feet tall. It's taller than our roof here. It's tall. And God tears it from the top down. So what does that mean? Why, does, why is that said this way? It's said because God says, when my son finished the work, that means that all of you can come into his presence now at any time. There is no longer a sacrifice required by a single person. You do not have to clean yourself up anymore to come into my presence. You come into my presence as you are, and I will do the work. I will clean you up. I will take care of the rest. But now it is open, and the throne room, the presence of God is open to all people. That is so significant. Amen. That is why we can be who we are wherever we're at. We don't have to be in a church service to get, the, to, to get the chill bumps of Jesus. We can be working. We can be at home. We can be driving our car. We can be at school. We can be in the presence of God wherever we're at because Jesus finished it and God tore it. <laughs> Jesus finished it and God tore the curtain and now we are come into the presence of God at will. That is a blessing and that is a truth to be, to be told. That is something that we maybe skip over too many times. Continuing on, the earth shook. The rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, this is interesting, too, because I don't fully understand it, but here's what I do believe. The power of God's resurrection was so powerful that other people were raised. Other holy people were raised. When Jesus came to life, God said, It's too big. <laughs> I can't stop it. It's like... It's like the story when Lazarus was, was raised from the dead. I hear it said that if Jesus wouldn't have said, Lazarus, come out, all the dead people would have come out. 
He couldn't have stopped with just Lazarus. So Jesus specifically said, Lazarus. In this situation, God's power of resurrection raises Jesus. And guess what? It spills over. (laughs) It spills over into other holy people. And that's what his presence is in us today. It spills over into other people. When we let Jesus be Jesus in our life, it spills over into those common people in the world, and we cannot help but be the salt and the light of the world. Amen. Verse 54, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. Now, if we stopped right there, and if we didn't go on any further reading this, then the religion or the faith that we have would be no different than any other world faith. Because every other world faith that claims to have a Savior, ask them where their Messiah is. Ask them where their leader is. Where is Muhammad? Where is Buddha? Where is Joseph Smith? Where are all these people? Where are they? Somebody tell me. They're dead. So if Jesus would have, as Scott said, hung and stayed on the cross, and if he didn't come down from the cross, if he would have stayed there, and if he's there in your mind right now, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story, we go on and we read it. But isn't it interesting, of all the expectations that were set up on Palm Sunday, if we stopped here, the only expectations that would have been met would have been those of the Pharisees. Because their expectations were they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to stop this uprising. They wanted to put to bed who this man was. So if the story would have ended here, they're the only ones that would have had their expectations met. The Jewish zealots would have been disappointed. The true believers of Christ would have been disappointed. The common people didn't have any expectations. And Jesus would not have been fulfilled in his expectations either. And isn't it ironic Think about this. Isn't it ironic? The only expectations that would have been met that day would have been those of the religious leaders. Wow. Wow. That hits home, folks. That hits me, and it should hit all of us right between the eyes. If the expectations of the religious leaders would have had a dead Christ, then what is that saying about religion What is it saying about those that believe in a religious faith that is based upon a dead religion? It is so important that we do not keep Jesus in the grave. It's so important that we do not keep him on the cross. It's so important that we see this cross here is empty. It may be bloodstained, and it may not look real pretty, but it's empty. He's not on the cross anymore. He's not in the grave anymore. Let's go on and mirth chapter 28 of Matthew, beginning at verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away, away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. Afraid yet filled with joy. Now can you imagine that? Have you ever been afraid yet filled with joy? Yeah, it's kind of interesting wording, isn't it? Afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, go to Galilee, where they will see me. That is the great news, that Jesus is no longer in the grave. Not only did his 12 disciples see him, but it's important to know that through that 40-day period of time that Jesus was alive, over 500 people saw him. 500 other people that could not be uh, considered Jesus' chosen 12 saw Jesus, proving, historically proving that Jesus is alive. Very important point, because that is something that no other faith can claim. The reality of Jesus' expectations, the reality, listen to this, the, rea the reality of Jesus' expectations far exceeded the realms of nature and human reasoning and human plans. That's the great news for us today. And that same reality spills over into our lives. That same reality, that expectation being met, that is God is bigger than any human problem. God is bigger than any human power. Spills over into my life, into your life, into the reality of who Jesus is for you and I today. That's the, that's the reality of Easter. The reality is that no matter what our expectations are, no matter what we think God is, God is bigger and he has the bigger plan than what we can ever think or imagine because God is God. And he is the creator and we are the creation and we are part and, and parcel in his plan. So now, the choice now comes to us. We can either be a willing part in it, or we can choose to be an opponent of it. So now, the choice here, the reality of Easter, brings a choice to us. The reality of Easter is that Christ wins, Satan loses, and now you and I have a choice. Christ wins, Satan loses, and you and I have a choice. That's the reality. And our choice is between God's plan of reality or Satan's failed expectations. Every one of Satan's expectations that week failed. Every one of them. He thought he had Jesus beat. He thought he had him on the cross. He thought he conquered. There must have been a big party in hell. But when Jesus took that first breath of life, that party turned pretty sour. <laughs> All of a sudden, Satan realized, whoops, we kicked the wrong hornet's nest. Whoops, we did the wrong thing. I thought we had him down. We thought we won. And Jesus crushed his head. Amen. All of Satan's expectations failed. All of Jesus's became reality. The choice of ours. Which one are we going to step into? 
Are we going to step into the expectations of a failed Satan or the expectations of the reality of a risen Savior? It's our choice. We have some questions to deal with today. What are we going to choose? What are our expectations and how are we dealing with the reality of the Easter message? Are we truly seeing what it takes to be a true follower of Christ? Do we really understand that now? Are we really getting it? Do we really understand what it takes? Or are we coming up with our own concepts or our, our, or our own expectations? We need to take the time to understand what Jesus did that day and so that we can really fully understand what he did for us. And the, and the only way we do that is to examine where we are today. What is our plight? What is our path forward today? Where are we in this plan of salvation. And I know this may seem very basic for many of us this morning because I know most of us here are well on their way. But it's always good to go back and review the fundamentals, isn't it? It's always good to make sure we go back to the foundation and say, are we really believing the truth of God's word? Or have we in any way, shape, or form brought a compromise in? Anything along the way that might soften the word a little bit or bring a shortcut in any way, shape, or form. So it's good that we go back so this morning, I want to take the next few minutes we have, and I want to go back to the basics of salvation. What really happened that day? But before we can do that, we have to understand who we are. Who am I? Who are you? Romans chapter 3 tells us in verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have come together they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We need to recognize who we are in our own righteousness. We are sinful people. And there is no one righteous, no one that can claim to be righteous enough to be pleasing to God. Verse 23 of that same chapter, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is the separator between God and man. When sin entered, death and separation entered into the world. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. We are all doomed to die once and then again in the second death that is eternal. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the eternal second death. And in our own righteousness, that's what we deserve. That's what we deserve, that the best we deserve is to be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Now, that's not a very pretty sight, is it? I haven't painted a very, pic very pretty picture here, have I? 
But then again, the cross of Christ wasn't very pretty either. When we see Jesus beaten and torn and destroyed as he was on the cross, believe me, that was not a pretty sight. But that was the sight that God needed to see. Because Jesus paid the penalty that you and I can't pay on our own. When he hung on that cross that day, he became your and my sin. All of the sin of all mankind that ever existed and ever is going to exist was heaped on Jesus that day. And God saw that and he had to turn away because he could not bear the sight of sin in his son's life. Even though Jesus didn't deserve that, he bore it. It was his choice to bear it. At any given time, he could have called 10,000 angels, 10,000 legions of angels, millions of angels could have come at any given time and got him off the cross. But he chose to hang there. He chose to be rejected. He chose to be despised. He chose to carry my sin and your sin. Why? So that I have a choice today. So that I can have a choice today. That's an, awful, that's an awful burden. That's an awful payment for a choice, isn't it? It's an awful payment somebody had to pay just so that I have a choice. See, the important part of it is if I choose incorrectly, then for me personally, Jesus wasted himself. All that suffering that Jesus went through that day is in vain if I choose to reject him. He didn't guarantee my salvation that day. Everybody can be saved if they choose to receive the gift. Sin entered the world with an everlasting consequence of eternal separation, eternal separation from a holy and righteous God. A just God. We've spoken about that quite a bit here. How God's justice system demands payment. God cannot overlook sin one time or his, he's no longer a just God. It has to be meted out. It has to be paid for. The sin condition is in every person's life no matter what kind of life they've lived. No matter how good or how bad you've lived, we have the sin condition in us. No one in the world, no one, no one in the world can achieve righteousness on their own. It doesn't make any difference who we are. And maybe that's hard for some of us to accept. Maybe it's hard for us to accept the fact that I'm just as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm just as bad as Adolf Hitler. I'm just as bad as Stalin. I'm just as bad as the worst thief or the worst murderer in the world. And I haven't done anything wrong. I'm a good citizen. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a good churchgoer. But you know what? If that's all I am, if that's all I am, I'm no different than the worst sinner. Just because I might want to sit in my garage, it doesn't make me a car. Just because I might want to sit in the church doesn't make me a Christian. We have to understand what it takes to be a Christian. We need to understand what it takes to accept the gift that Jesus gives us, no matter how good or how bad we are. The, the last and most important part of the reality of Easter is that now each one of us is given a choice to accept it or not accept it. Just as sin, the source of all our problems, came into the world as a result of the reality of a choice, the remedy of that reality also comes in the form of a choice. See, Adam and Eve had a choice. 
They didn't have to sin. They didn't have to do what they did. Sin did not have to come into the world. That wasn't God's plan. God didn't plan for them to do that. God designed them to live forever. He designed them not to sin. But man sinned. The choice, man sinned. The remedy also comes in the form of a choice. God's plan is that all would come to Jesus. That all would understand the righteousness of who Jesus is. See, the devil today is very, very cunning and very, very deceptive. And he brought Adam and Eve into this area of sin through a very deceptive strategy, a very gentle way. He didn't come in as the man with horned, you know, the, 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 the guy in the red outfit with horns. and all, You know, he came in as a snake, which I don't know, that wasn't very pretty anyways, but he came in as a, as a serpent. But they followed along, and they, he, he cunningly deceived them. And, and here's the thing that's just very, very important. Do you know, listen to this, that happened about 6,000 years ago or so. Do you know how much better Satan is today as, a, as, a, as that deception than he was then? Do you know he's had billions of people to practice on? Only God never changes. Everything else changes. Satan has gotten much better in the area of deception. He's gotten much more cunning because he's had much more practice. So don't be surprised when a little deceptive thing comes into your life and that you find yourselves maybe going down a path of deception because the devil is very subtle at it. He's very good at it. He brings compromises in our life all the time that we don't necessarily see as sin because he covers it so well. He comes as an angel of light so well. That's why we need to be grounded in the, ba in the Bible. That's why we need to have good Bible teaching. We need to understand what's real and what's not real. We need to understand the reality of God's Word. That's why coming in at 4 o'clock on Sunday to have Sandra continue to teach Bible fundamentals is so important. That's why being here on Sunday morning Sunday school is so important. That's why coming on Wednesday night Bible study is so important that you understand truth. How do you know truth if you don't understand it, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't heard it? You can't take a buy here. You can't just say, well, I'm good enough as I am. Therefore, you know what that is? That's deception. That's a very cunning, deceptive devil that's very good at it coming into your life and saying, you're good enough. You're good enough. Good enough for what? The choice is simple, but it's difficult at both ends. Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had the choice. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. All right? Jesus had the choice. It was a hard choice. And likewise, he's giving us a choice today. It's a free choice. Gift, the, salvation of, the, the gift of salvation is free, yet understand it's going to require everything of you to receive it. Luke chapter 14 Verse 26, if anyone, Jesus, Jesus speaking, this is Jesus' words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, this is a simile here. What he's saying, if, if he uses the word hate as a way to say, if you don't love me more than these, he doesn't physically say that I have to hate you, mother. I don't hate you, mother. I just love Jesus more. That's what he's saying. 
I don't have to hate my wife. I don't have to hate my mother. I just love Jesus more. That's what this is saying. If I can't love Jesus more than all these things, if I can't love Jesus more than the treasures that I have on earth, then I have no treasure in heaven. And then verse 27, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. It's a choice, folks, but it's going to take everything you have. It's a free choice. It's a free gift. You can't earn it on your own. But when you give it to Jesus, and when you give yourself to him fully, it's a joy. <laughs> it's not a duty anymore. When I feel the fullness of Jesus in my life and my heart, and it's easy then for to give him the rest of me because I know that on the other hand, the enemy is deceptive and he's out to destroy me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Understand, he is not your friend and he never will be your friend. He may come to you in gentleness. He may come to you as a, as a fun time with your friends. He may come to you as a, a way to be accepted in our society today. He may come to you in many ways because he's had lots of practice coming to people to deceive them. But understand this, he is not your friend. He is out for one purpose only, and that is to destroy you and to devour you. He does not want to see one person be acceptable to God. He wants the reality of your Christianity to be so compromised that you're just shy of being acceptable to God. <laughs> See, he doesn't care, quite honestly, if you go to church or not. He doesn't care if you're a great guy. He doesn't care if you've given the offerings. He doesn't care if you're a great employee, a great parent. He doesn't care if you're a very moral, upright person. He just wants to make sure that you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Anything short of that, he wins. So he doesn't really care. In fact, in fact, listen... For those that are self-righteous, and I can raise my hand too, okay? I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. But for those of us that are self-righteous, what we're doing is that we're giving the devil an easy job. Because what he does, limited, understand, he is limited in his resources. Only God is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. Only God is all-powerful. All the devil has limited resources. So if I am playing the game of Christianity, but short of God's favor... The devil knows it, and you know what? The devil will leave me alone. He has no reason to come in and make me a murderer. He has no reason to come in and make me fail in my business. He has no reason to come in and destroy anything else in my life because he's already got me right where he wants me, and now he's going he's gonna to divert his resources to Jackie Bogue, our worship leader, or to anyone else here that's a true Christian, a true follower, and he's going to be smart in his strategy and he's not going to go to you that are already playing the game because he already got you. You think you're good. He knows. Life can be so good for the, for the marginal Christian that, you, that he says, ah, I'm not touching him. I'm not sleep kicking that sleeping dog. I'm going to go to this one that's truly following Christ, and I'm going to beat them up. I'm going I'm to make them feel that they're going down the wrong path. He will divert his energies to those where he has not won. Does that mean now you have to look for problems in your life? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that you have to be a miserable Christian. <laughs> I'm just saying you need to be a devoted Christian. You need to be devoted. You need to be sold on Jesus with nothing less, with no compromise. That's all I'm trying to say. The reality is we win if we choose. The power is in the choice. The power is in the choice. Jackie, 
Would you come? And let's conclude this. The power is in the choice. Jesus made the choice, and now he's giving us the choice. We've already read it. In Romans, we already read it, that there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every one of us has fallen short of God's pleasure, and none of us will see God's glory in our own righteousness. None of us. And then just a little bit long, a little bit further down in Romans chapter 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life. What is this gift? This gift is the payment for our sins. This gift is a free gift that I can't earn on my own. It is the payment for my sin. So if God has provided a free gift, what's interesting about a gift is that it must be received before it has any value. I say I might have a million dollars for anybody who wants to come up and take it right now. But if nobody came up to take it, the gift is of no value. The gift of eternal life is there. It's been paid for. But now you and I must reach out and accept that gift. We must recognize we're sinful people. We must recognize that we are in need of someone else to pay for my sin. We must realize that we cannot make our own payment. And we must accept the fact that Jesus became that payment for us by living a perfect life, dying a death that he didn't deserve to die. Rather, he hung there in my place. And after I recognize that, I have to go one step further. The step further is I must receive the gift. I must now say, Jesus, I recognize that. I recognize who I am. I recognize who you are. And Jesus, I am really sorry that you would hang on that cross for me. I'm really sorry that I, that's happening. Here's the remedy. The choice is I accept it. I accept it. That means I repent. That means I say I'm sorry. That means I say, Jesus, would you clean me up? I receive the gift that you're giving to me. I receive it in the name of Jesus. Would you please forgive me? Would you please forgive me? And when we say those simple words, it's over. It's done. It is finished. I'm forgiven. So this morning, I want to pray. Maybe you've already done this, and maybe you're living for Jesus, and all is good in your life. Maybe you've at one time had a relationship with Jesus, and maybe things have drifted away a little bit. And maybe you need to renew this relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never heard the gospel message presented before. I want to make an invitation today. I want to make an invitation that's going to require some boldness on your part. But it's the most important question a person could ever ask you. What are you doing with the reality of Easter? What are you doing with Jesus Christ? Would you close your eyes? You know, it's important that we recognize that whoever Jesus called, he called publicly. And this morning, I feel like we need to call publicly today. This morning, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, or maybe you have and you've drifted away, and maybe you just want to renew that relationship with him, 
I want to give you the opportunity to come forward today and accept Jesus as your Savior. I want to give you the opportunity to come forward today and publicly say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, or Jesus, I've drifted away, or Jesus, I just want to be closer to you. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to say you're a bad person. No one's going to condemn you. Rather, you're going to have everybody praying and agreeing and celebrating with you, no matter what, why you came up here. So this morning, I just want to open the altars, and I just want to say it's time. It's time that we give the devil his due, and that we stop and we say, Devil, I reject your expectations, and, I, and Jesus, I accept the reality of Easter. I accept the reality of your forgiveness of my sins. Amen. Jackie's going to lead us in a song. The altars are open.
prayer of benediction. And you're free to go. I thank you for being here today. However, if you want to stay and pray, if you want to pray privately, I'll stay at the front. Others will as well. If there's things that you want to take care of between you and Jesus, take care of it. Don't, don't let it go. Don't let this opportunity be wasted. This is a very precious time. This is a very special time. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much, Father, for everything you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the choice that you made. Thank you for giving us the choice. Thank you, Lord, that we now can ex exercise that choice and we can become redeemed people. And I thank you for the reality of Easter. And I pray blessings on us today as we go to our homes. But, Father, for those that still have things to take care of, I pray that they would stay and that we would take care of business, that we would understand that we are truly righteous and we've accepted that free gift of salvation in our hearts and our lives. We thank you for this and we give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.